Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to Biopod, the official podcast of the School of Biological Sciences here at the University of Edinburgh. I'm Sam Haynes, and today I'm delighted to introduce an extra special Biopod episode exploring important issues for supporting women in science. For this episode, we welcome two truly exceptional academics researching at our school. But a small disclaimer, due to COVID-19 restrictions, this episode was recorded using Zoom, so may contain slightly more background noise than usual. Now, with that said, I'll hand you over to the lovely Joanne. Welcome to Biopod. My name is Joan Cortado, and today we're going to talk about conducting science internationally and the progress towards equality for women in science. To discuss this, we are delighted to be joined by two exceptionally successful female scientists with a lot of international experience, Professor Mary Melcari and Professor Lynn Regan. Professor Elkari, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. And Professor Regan, thank you also for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to be part of this. Before we start, I would like to celebrate that the Nobel Prize in Chemistry has just been awarded to Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudner for the work in the development of genome editing tool CRISPR-Cas9. That's great news for science in general, especially for women in science. Congratulations to both of them. Having mentioned this excellent news, could you please tell us a little bit about yourselves and what you research? Maybe we could start with Professor Okari. Yes, so I was uh, born and raised in France, although my father is from Tunisia, so I'm actually of a mixed background. And then I did all my undergraduate studies in France. I actually, my undergrad was in math and physics, mostly math. Uh, but then I discovered biology, so I did a master in microbiology, also in France, and then my PhD of, in microbiology in France. Then I did a postdoc uh, at Oxford University with Jeff Errington on cell division in Bacillus subtilis. Came back to France, started my group where we were uh, at that moment using the fact that there were more and more uh, complete genomes of bacteria that were being sequenced. So we uh, use that opportunity to analyze those genomes and identify specific DNA motifs that are present in these uh, genomes that are important for genome maintenance. And then I had the opportunity to go on an extended sabbatical at Harvard Medical School because I wanted to learn uh, quite a different type of biology. So I, w- I became really interested in something which we call stochastic gene expression. So the fact that from one cell to the other, even if the cells are genetically identical, uh, the way the genome is expressed can be a bit different. So I spent, initially I was going to spend two years at Harvard, but uh, we also had a baby, so I ended up spending three years, thanks to a Marie Curie fellowship. And then, so I essentially learned a bit of a new field. And after that, I wanted to go back to Europe, so I applied to different positions in Europe. And I ended up uh, accepting a position in at the University of Edinburgh. So I've been in Edinburgh since January 19, uh, sorry, since January 2013. And so this is where I rebuild my group. So I, I had a group in France, and then went on sabbatical, and then build again my group in in Edinburgh. And I've been here uh, so far. 
Thank you for that introduction. And Professor Regan? So I was born in Leeds in the north of England and I was the first person that we knew in my family or anybody who went to university. And so I currently actually have a big interest in increasing the representation of people like that in academia. I went, I was fortunate, I went to Oxford for my undergraduate in biochemistry. I liked physics and chemistry and biology and I found biochemistry a good match. I did my PhD at MIT, which I liked a lot. And by that time, I'd been in the US so long that I looked for postdocs in the US and I ended up an unusual choice going to a research institute of DuPont company because protein design, somebody doing that, a new field was starting there and, and I didn't know what was going to happen from what's going to happen from the research and so I jumped in and started doing that and then I was at Yale University doing research on understanding fundamental issues connected with protein structure and taking the approach of protein design to understand the physical makeup of proteins and also we always said a goal was to make new and useful things and then I moved to Edinburgh after giving a talk here and then doing a sabbatical here and realizing that in the Synthesis Center, which coincidentally Mariam is now head of, then there was a huge range of interesting and inspiring practical things going on where the protein would fit in. And so I moved here as um, a professor and started building a group here, similar to what Mariam said, in July 2018. So I, I, I kind of graduated everybody who was in my group at Gale. One person is sort of here with me, but um, yeah, that's how I got here and what I'm interested in. Okay, thank you both for that introduction by yourselves. So as you've mentioned, you have both lived abroad at different stages of your career. I wanted to ask you a bit more about this international experience. Mm -hmm. So was it difficult to adjust to, to the new system? How do you think this international experience impacted your future career and finally what are the main differences between working there and here in the uk maybe link could start first okay so that's a, a, a huge question <laughs> so when i went to mit people said oh it'll be so different from oxford but actually it, it really wasn't and I loved it there and I loved being amongst people who were just doing, you know, interested in research like I was. I didn't find that. But the impact on my career was, like I said, I'd been there so long and back then there wasn't the same sort of interactions and, you know, either real or virtual across countries. And so I was completely plugged into the US system and so I ended up staying there and getting my first job there. I, I didn't know very much about the UK system. I think since then, as a PI in the US, then I became came to know more people in my field internationally. And in the UK in particular, there was a very strong group of people in my area. I think that the PhD, the structure, the career structure is quite different. And so just to quickly mention that, so here in the UK, then people do very short PhDs, very project-based. In the US, they can be longer. And I think not, so people come out of US PhDs with a bit more experience, more publications, perhaps more teaching experience. And the other thing that I think 
is in the career structure in the UK, you would tend to, after your postdoc, get an individual fellowship, say a welcome post to a Royal Society, to start up your grant and then maybe move to a senior fellowship or a lecturer, reader, professor route. In the US, you're doing a longer PhD, typically one postdoc, and then you do on the so-called tenure track, which is you get a position as assistant professor and you then have this somewhere between six and ten years, which actually on the topic of women in science, that's really bad because it's just the time that you would be wanting to have a child. And so the tenure, the clock at Yale actually was, well, you're either in your early 40s when you have tenure, and then would you try and have a baby then? Or would you have a baby before you have tenure this time when you're being critically assessed on what you're doing? So in the UK, people actually take time for maternity leave. And it's, it's a little different. There's that, I think there's that, that this tenure decision is a big deal. And the timing is very ill-matched to, you know, a woman's life. Uh, and biological possibilities. So I think that's all I'm going to say now and hand over to Miriam. So so for me, I did my PhD in France, right? And then I moved for a postdoc at Oxford. Um, It really wasn't that different. It's a bit of the same experience as Lynn, in, in the sense that, you know, I did my PhD in a department where people were doing a lot of research. And then I moved to Oxford, where in another department where we were all doing a lot of research. what was great was I was meeting, you know, many different people, learning new things. But in terms of the general organization, we were very, very research oriented in both cases. So I didn't see such a really big uh, mm-hmm. difference. One thing to note, however, is that I was part of the very, very lucky people who managed to get in France a permanent position before I left for my postdoc. Uh, and that's because in France we have uh, what we call national research institutes. One, the most common one is called CNRS, which is the main national research institute. We have also one for medical research and one for agricultural research, which actually is where I got my position. Um, and these are research-only institutes, but they are offering quite a lot of positions, and these are permanent positions. So I was in an extremely lucky uh, condition where I was able to go on a postdoc but I was then, I knew I was coming back to France to a permanent position. And this was very early. I was in my 30s, right? Early in my 30s. Uh, and what it meant is when I came back to France, I started my group, but I also had actually three kids in between 2001 and 2007. And that was not easy by any means, but it was much less difficult than it would be if, it had, if I had been on a tenure track. And so I completely second what Lynn is saying, which is that this tenure track issue makes things really quite difficult in the US. In the UK, as Lynn has said, just after your postdoc, usually you move to an independent fellowship, which, you know, I don't think it's that much easier than a tenure track because you are still on a, you know, you're on a fixed term contract and you don't have any guarantee that you will then be considered to be hired by a university. Therefore, uh, and that I think is very clear for women, it really coincides with the time where, you know, you're, you might be thinking about having a family. And I think in both cases, 
uh, it puts a lot of pressure on, on women's career. And I'm sort of, you know, I'm a kind of a counterexample. So I was very, very fortunate because because I had that permanent position, I felt like I could take the risk of, you know, taking time off to take care of my kids. And we'll, you know, it has impact on the papers that you publish, on the grants that you can get for sure. Uh, at least it was not impacting my salary, my position. Now, I think the question was even broader and it was about also, uh, you know, what, what did I learn from moving in many different places? So, you know, after all of that and when I had, you know, my comfortable position in France, then I actually decided to move, right? I decided to move to the US with three kids and uh, it turns out that my husband's job was in France. So, you know, I was kind of really the primary caregiver whilst I was in the US uh, uh, during that sabbatical. And from a scientific point of view, it was really fantastic. I, I was at the uh, systems biology department in Harvard. I was really, I learned a lot of things and it was really a lot of fun. And then especially because, you know, I had been managing my group. I, I had time because I was on sabbatical to go back to the bench and I learned a lot of microscopy and I really enjoyed doing microscopy. So it was so good. It was so nice. Um, and again, I was in this sort of fortunate position that I was, you know, I was a visiting professor. I had a position in France. Uh, and so I had, but, but then I saw also how hard it is, to, you know, when you're primary caregiver, taking care of your kids uh, whilst doing, you know, a lot of work. I mean, my husband would travel back and forth, but, you know, back and forth from France to Boston is not, you know, something that you do every day. So I, I was doing really most of the, of the caregiving. I was very lucky because I, I had a Marie Curie fellowship, which was paying me very uh, generously, which meant that we could afford really nice childcare. Right. If I hadn't had that, I probably wouldn't have managed to actually, you know, benefit so much from the sabbatical. Uh, and that's something that I learned, which is that, you know, in the US, childcare is extremely expensive. It is also the case, actually, in the UK. This is actually quite different from what it is in, the, in France, where uh, childcare is subsidized to a large extent. And so at least for people who are, for example, PhD students just starting their career, uh, because they don't earn that much money, childcare will not be that expensive because it's in many cases mean, means tested. Uh, so I would not say it's not expensive. It is expensive, but compared to how much you need to pay in the US or even in the UK, it's a bit cheaper in the UK, but still, you know, there is a really big difference. So that you can see how general society choices have an impact on how people can actually manage family and career. And you know, it still is the case that childcare is very much done by women and therefore the impact on women's career is very strong. That said, I thought that, you know, moving was really fantastic. It was fantastic for my family too. So all my kids are bilingual now. Uh, so, and that's really amazing, but it comes with a lot of work. So, you know, raising bilingual, uh, parent, uh, bilingual kids is a lot of work for the parents. So, you know, it's not like, you know, it's not like a super rosy picture, everything's fine, uh, everything, you know, works fantastically. It's, it's a lot of work for everybody in the family, for the kids. It's not that easy to change, right? And when we moved from the US to, to uh, Scotland, that was a, yet another move. So at least my kids did not have to learn another language. But, uh, you know, it's still like you have to remake friends, you, uh, different school system, all of this, right? And it is a bit challenging. So I wouldn't, I would not say that moving is like easy peasy, you know, fantastic, all of this. There are some fantastic things I learned, 
you know, I learned so much. I also met really nice friends. Uh, it has certainly had, has also improved my international profile, spending time at Harvard, which of course is a, you know, it's a very well-known university. I met a lot of people, which means that now I also know a lot of people, right? Uh, but there are also drawbacks and the drawbacks are that it's, you know, it is challenging for the family. Thank you. I was going to say, I'm sure they had to adapt to the Scottish accent, your, your children. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, <laughs> well, th thank you. That sounds like both of you, like a story of hard work, um, success, and also what Lynn was saying about the 10-year track. Yeah, I've, I've heard of other people having this situation with like the wrong timing and this can have a huge impact on the the future academic career of that person so it sounds like it can be quite tough depending on like case by case just before we move on to more the specifics i wanted to to ask you if you had any role models while you were developing your academic career maybe Miriam would like to start yeah so so I haven't said so much about my background. So contrary to Lynn, I come from a family uh, where people have been to university. Actually, my mother is a fa fairly famous math professor. In, I mean, she's quite famous in her field, uh, which means two things. For in my, first, in my family, it's the girls who do math, not the boys. <laughs> and also, you know, I was very familiar with university, with the university system in France, right? And to some extent, I think, you know, I can say that probably my mum was my first role model. So for me, it was never a question as to whether I was going to go to university or not, right? That was always obvious that I was going to go. And it was also never a question as to whether I would work or not. So I wasn't sure I wanted to do research, but I was always certain I was, I was going to have a career. And I was also certain that this hadn't, didn't have a negative impact on the kids. And on the contrary, right? As a kid, I was really happy my mom was busy. So as a teenager in particular, I was really happy she was busy. <laughs> and, and I certainly never felt like, you know, uh, it was hard because my mom was working and, and all of this. Right? So I think a lot of things that I have after that discussed with friends who maybe didn't come from such a background, uh, for me, it was a bit of a given, right? It wasn't like I wasn't asking myself. Actually... The, the issue here is that I think I didn't realize how hard it is to have a career and, and raise kids uh, because my mom never said it was hard, but actually it was hard. <laughs> it is hard. And, um, you know, so maybe it was good that I didn't know. But, you know, I think it's also good to acknowledge that it's not easy. It's really, you know, you need to be really committed and you need to work hard. And, you know, it's like a lot of compromise. You know? But. Uh, so that was certainly my first role model. The second thing is I was extremely fortunate. So my PhD advisor, uh, she's really a fantastic scientist. And she gave me really the sort of right balance between giving me some guidance, but, but letting me really explore certain directions. So I was really interested in sort of mixing biology with some sort of mathematical modeling. And, mm -hmm. and she doesn't do math, but she was very comfortable with letting me, you know, develop collaborations and stuff. And I think this is really something that really helped funded my career. And I, you know, I still to this day, I sort of mix biology and mathematics. And uh, certainly I, I want to credit her. Her name is Alexandra Gross and she's really, she's both a fantastic scientist, but also a fantastic mentor. And then 
Then I had lots of interactions with fantastic people, both men and women. So my postdoc advisor, Jeff Harrington, is also somebody who's really a fantastic mentor. But also what I want to say is some of them, some of these interactions I really created. So uh, I was advised both by my PhD advisor, but also by many other people that it's really important to go and talk to people when you're thinking about your career. And I sort of uh, really you know, took that and went and discussed with a lot of different people at certain stages in my career. So just after my PhD, before going on the postdoc to decide exactly what I wanted to do, I was also thinking maybe I would move to industry. So you know, I, I spent quite a lot of time discussing with lots of different people, people from industry, people from research, all of this. And then also uh, when I decided to to do a sabbatical because that, that wasn't such an obvious uh, thing that I had established my group in France. I was getting quite well known. And then I decided to actually change a bit the direction of my research, which is not something, you know, completely trivial. Uh, and I think this is really important to acknowledge that being able to discuss with a lot of different people who have different ideas about what is a career, scientific career is really, really useful. It really helps uh, shape your own ideas and identify what you really want to do. At the end of the day, you're the one who takes the decision. But having all this interaction is really important. Yeah, I agree with you and how important it is to, to meet all the people and learn from others. And I'm, I'm glad you had such a strong role model even at home. Maybe Lynn could share if okay. you had. Wow. So I think my experience is very different from um, Miriam's. So I would say that my role model was Marie Curie. <laughs> I, when I was a teenager, I was reading all the several biographies of Marie Curie. And I can tell you, she went on honeymoon on a bicycle trip with her husband and she got married in a suit that she could reuse. And I didn't go on honeymoon on a bicycle ride, but I certainly got married in a suit I could reuse for interviews. So, and the other thing, so there was nobody close to me um, that was a role model. The other thing, and I, this has come to me in more in retrospect, there was a stamp, you know, postage stamp that came out in England that had Dorothy Hodgkin on it and the structure of B12. And I think it must have been subliminal that I thought, oh, a female scientist and biochemistry, you know, biology chemistry interface. And it seems such a trivial thing, but it's not really. I think that, and and it ha other people have mentioned that to me, it's just in like common day life, you think these symbols perhaps don't have an effect, but they, I think they do. The other thing I would say that my PhD supervisor and my postdoc supervisors were both men, but neither of them did I ever have any indication of like a male female bias. It was always they cared about what you're doing and what your research was and if you were getting results. So that I think the thing that there, there was nobody in, you mentioned, which I hope is inspirational for people today, two females winning the Nobel Prize in chemistry. There wasn't anything kind of close like that. It was more like, yeah, who has Marie Curie as a role model? There, there wasn't anybody in a position really close to me to be a, a role model. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure she is a, a role model for for many other, <laughs> well, both men and women. Like, I think you've partially answered the next question which was if you had ever experienced obstacles or scenarios during your career that your male colleague may not have 
Uh, maybe you want to add something more into that. Yeah. So I th- so remember I talked about this, and I think especially these days, it's a lot of little things. It's not any big overt, you know, discrimination, but lots of little things. And so, for example, somebody said to me fairly recently in the US, uh, I was asking about a summer program that they'd had for undergrads, and they said to me. Oh, they weren't really very good. They were all women and minorities. <laughs> and they said that to me. And so, <laughs> you know, so it's, <laughs> Miriam's falling off her chair here. But that was quite recently. Going back further, I've been in situations where I was the only woman speaking at a conference, the only person on a committee. One time I was on this committee and someone, um, an ministry person, came up and asked me if I was sure I was in the right place. And then when there were like 20 guys and when another woman came in, he asked her the same thing. And I do remember going up and confronting him saying, why are you only asking the women if we're in the right place? But it's little things like that. that I mean, that's, those two examples are not so little. Uh, <laughs> I think they're quite big. Yeah. But it's lots of things like that or being, yeah. So I think that it's that type of thing. And... I, I do think the situation has changed because I think the more women you get in science and the more women that are strong scientists and that you respect for their science and then you can start not thinking, is that a male or a female? You just think, um, that's my example. That's the NMR person you know, versus that's the woman applicant. So the more you have in, in higher positions, I think... The better what well, going from group leader upwards i think it makes a big difference if you're in a room and you're the only woman it be, your opinion becomes the female position versus you as an individual and that happens a lot i've seen that on review panels for grants and it becomes difficult because if there's only two women and 20 men then you kind of don't want to contradict the other woman because it feels like a bit of, even if you have a different opinion, because it's a little bit of solidarity, you don't want to... So it makes the dynamic very difficult if it's not more like a th- equal or a third, two-thirds. If you have just those two token people, like 10%, it doesn't make for a good conversation. And I have been in all those circumstances. So those are some... But I think it's better the more women you have in science. Yeah, it's certainly the place where we should be is where we don't actually realize or or think it's a, a male or a woman. We should be in a situation where it shouldn't matter. We are all yeah. Like yeah. A, a fair distribution and talking to people based on what they're saying. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and also we're not talking about background today or like uh, ethnicity, or but that should also be mm-hmm. that applies to it to, to that as well. Yeah, I was going to ask you if if the situation of women in science has changed much over the years. I'm sad to hear that these examples you gave were actually quite recent, but I'll ask it anyway. Do, do you think it has changed much over the years? I think there's there's it's changing. I would say the uh, the thing that the, the more that it'd be less likely the more women you have in science, the less likely that kind of situation is going to occur. I think. I think I'll hand over to Mariam now. Yeah, I mean, I think it is changing for sure, uh, but it's very slow. The pace is slow. And, you know, in biology, so, you know, School of Biological Sciences, we're really, really happy because this year we have 30% female professor. 
in 2020. Ten years ago, we had, I think, 19% female professors. So we've, we've improved a lot, right, in ten years. That was not... Uh, that was not just by chance. There was a lot of work behind the scene to try and improve, right? And if we don't do a lot of work behind the scene, then it's actually not going to improve that fast, right? Mm -hmm. um, and this is biology. I was discussing with a colleague from informatics uh, recently, and, you know, the proportion of female scientists actually from undergraduate level till pro to professor is really low. It's between 15 to 17%, sometimes up to 20 but it's really, really low. Okay. One thing to jump in on that, which I mean, this is from the US studies, I don't know about the UK, but fields like that, like bioinformatics or physics that are a low percentage undergrad, it doesn't get lower, right? So what happens in biology of chemistry, say, you start off maybe 50% female undergrad and it goes rapidly down. In, in some statistics I've heard about the US, then in engineering or physics, it might start off at 10% as undergrad, but then it maintains at 10%, it doesn't go down to 1%. So that's sort of interesting how that comes about. Yeah, so it's the same thing in the UK. Mm -hmm. So in biology, we really have what we call the CISO graph. So, you know, undergrad level is actually 62%. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the average proportion of female professor in biology in the UK is 20%, 22, mm -hmm. something like that, right? Which is why, you know, in Edinburgh, we're really proud that we have 30%, yeah. yeah. but still, you know. Uh, and so uh, and so it's called a scissor graph because it goes down for women and, and higher up for men, right? The proportion, mm -hmm. so it looks yeah. like a scissor. Um, it's also called sometimes the glass ceiling, so the fact that you lose women at each stage. Mm -hmm. This is actually the, the more common observation uh, what I mean by more common is you will see that also in large companies, right? In large companies, you really will see a glass ceiling where you have quite a lot of women that sort of uh, middle grades and then it goes down and down uh, the higher up you go. I, I know absolutely that this is the case in the UK, as is in the US, uh, that some disciplines that are very male-oriented, so physics, computer science, tend to have low level of women all the way across, and it doesn't really fall. Mm -hmm. I don't really know why. Uh, I think there's an intermediate thing with uh, math, which tends to have actually a bit more women at undergraduate level, mm -hmm. and, but then it starts to fall, although I'm not entirely sure about the, the numbers. Uh, we don't really have a good explanation for that. Mm -hmm. uh, I suspect that the women who choose computer science or physics they're essentially ready for a really tough situation. And whereas women who might choose fields where they're actually in the majority at the very beginning, right? Because in, in, mm -hmm. in biology now, women are in the majority at undergraduate level. They might be a bit more surprised mm -hmm. by what's going on afterwards. It's probably a very complex system, like with uh, several factors having a role. But do you think it's a, it's a one big factor? Um, are we doing something wrong in the process of uh, selecting applicants or what do you think? Uh, so uh, there's many different factors for sure, right? Uh, the one, however, there's one clear factor which is called motherhood penalty. So uh, in the US there was a really big study done by the National Science Foundation. On a, They have a cohort of people who got their PhD over time and they follow them, right? Mm -hmm. And you can quantify uh, how much uh, having a child will essentially lower your probability of getting tenure and you also lower your salary and all of this. Mm -hmm. So this is like, you know, it's very strongly quantified. 
That's not the only uh, reason. There is some, some, something that we call unconscious bias. So there was a really famous paper published in PNAS in 2012 where uh, people prepared a CV for a scientist, um, actually biology, I think, if I remember correctly. And then uh, they send the CV to approximately 200 faculty, but half of the CVs were for John and the other half was for Jennifer. Okay, And then they asked faculty, and they had chosen the faculty panel uh, for being, so this was in the US, so you know people running labs in the US, but the, the 200 faculty was half women, half men, approximately, right? And they asked everybody to rank the, the CV, and then they compare the results, and the results were that systematically, when the CV was for in the name of John, they were getting a higher assessment in terms of the potential abilities of the person. Exactly they were CV, it's just the exactly strictly identical CV, just two different okay. uh, first names, right? Uh, and you know the, the male CV was getting higher, you know, higher evaluations in terms of competency and skills and all of this. They were offered a higher salary and they were offered more opportunities for mentoring. And the really interesting thing is that male PIs and female PIs were as biased. Mm -hmm. Okay, so and so this is very often people refer to to that general phenomenon as what we call unconscious bias, which is that we expect scientists to be white men, and therefore we will actually unconsciously um, act in in ways that reinforce our belief, and that's really hard to to change. It's possible, and you know we provide unconscious bias training, which you can then discuss whether it's good or not, etc. Uh, but to raise awareness around this, and this is something that is done, for example, in hiring panels now, quite carefully. Uh, but you know this bias is there, and I still catch myself being biased. I think also following up on that, I think that study was perhaps the what. There's been a couple. This one was done, I think, by someone at Yale. So. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I do, I do um, Joe Handelsman, I think. Yeah. yeah, and there are other examples. So um, University of Wisconsin has got um, some, a study group about, or oh, some NSF funding about gender and excellence. And they found that with this unconscious bias, when people applied for, say, an assistant professor job, then depending on kind of like who the panel wanted, then if someone was stronger in teaching them research, no matter what they said at the beginning, say the if the guy was stronger in research and they were looking for a teacher, somehow research then becomes more important. It's like, oh, he's better qualified and vice versa. So there's a bit of that kind of unconsciously going on. And so actually what they did for guidelines was to explicitly have people say up front, what are we looking for and what, and, and I think we do that now at Edinburgh and we have done that a bit also at Yale, but there were, they had studied it and found that people kind of changed what they thought they were looking for. But this example is like a very famous one that Merriam was quoting that people have done in different contexts, that you don't think that you have, I think that's the worst thing, you don't think you have a bias, but <laughs> clearly you do. You know, you wouldn't go and say, oh golly, yes, I'm so biased. But like they said, this males and females were equally biased, it's identical CV. But just depending on the name, which is... Can, and I, can I just add something? So I have presented these results yeah. to you know different people who are PIs and are doing hiring. And I've had sometimes to sit in front of a room where I was the only woman and being told by, by, the, by people that this was maybe happening in the US, but this was not happening in their department. 
I would I, can I follow up on that so Joe Handelsman who I think did this study she moved I think from Wisconsin to Yale and she said whenever she talked about this stuff people say well maybe that happens at Harvard but not Wisconsin or people at Harvard well maybe that happens at Wisconsin but it clearly doesn't happen here and she got the same reaction at Yale well elsewhere but I think in this study they were quite, I mean, I, she sent this to a bunch of people, but people tend to do that. They're like, oh, surely not here. That She she did talk about getting that reaction, yeah. Yeah, we, we all have our biases in higher or lower degrees. Do you think the solution to that needs to come from a government action, from the universities, or where, where do you think it needs to come from? It seems that uh, the problem starts from the very beginning and it's very into the society, right? It's quite widespread. Yeah, so very often I have people who tell me, well, you know, we can't do anything, right? Because women will not apply, yeah. right? Which is the case, right? Uh, we do have, usually for a position at uh, PI position, we usually have a whole lower proportion of women. And it's not our fault if the women are not applying. And anyway, because it's the way they think about science, you know, that should be done in primary school or kindergarten or maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe a, in, the in the hospital, <laughs> yeah, where they're born, right? Okay, so to that I say that, in my opinion, there's, there's essentially strategies and solutions. So solutions are really long-term things that institutions can do to try and overcome this bias. And institutions, you know, the university has a responsibility. It has to check how it's doing the hiring, making sure that we are reducing as much as we can the bias in the hiring, making sure it develop programs to, to you know, help people, etc. right? So this is like the institution. That might mean, for example, that when we introduce parental leave, which the UK government Mm -hmm. uh, introduce the university uh, then had a choice of either accepting to pay what we call enhanced pay so a higher level of pay for people who are taking parental leave or just leave it to the sort of minimal pay that the government is doing obviously if it's living to the minimal pay we know that people are not going to take parental leave mm -hmm. therefore men are not going to take time off right and women will take the maternity leave because for maternity leave, the university was already uh, uh, mm. uh, offering enhanced pay. Right? So there was quite a bit of discussion, I can tell you, uh, that I was involved in, but I was not the only one, to push the university to actually put in place uh, increased pay of parental leave, making sure that men will, re will benefit from it and therefore they have a much higher incentive of taking it. Right? So this is what I call solutions. Like the institution need to look at itself and decide what are the priorities. Right? At the same time, you know, institutions move slowly and the society moves really slowly. So I am also not comfortable with people telling me, well, you know, things need to change at the society level, so we're not going to do anything. Right? And so this is what I call strategies. And strategies are ways, like much smaller things that you can do to sort of acknowledge that the situation is not perfect, but you still try to improve it. So few things, uh, something that we did in biological sciences is to organize a fund that people can apply to if they're going to a conference and because they're going to a conference, they have additional costs either for childcare or maybe if they're taking care of their elderly parents. Right? So, you know, the general costs we can't fund, but if when you go to a meeting, you have additional costs, this is a deterrent. This is something that sometimes people will not do. So we put in place that fund to support that. 
And lo and behold, most of the applicants were women. Right? I actually tried really hard to get men to apply, mm -hmm. but most of the, uh, of the applicants were women. And so it means that clearly we had a strategy that was helping women more than men. But, you know, this was the, the, the fund is open to both men and women, but it turns out that the need was for women. Okay. Mm -hmm. So this is much more like, you know, it's not a really big change. It's a small thing. It actually doesn't cost that much money, uh, but it can also help. And it, to some extent, I see it as a way of bridging uh, the situation, right? So childcare is still unevenly uh, balanced, although of course it's very family dependent. I also have quite a few male colleagues who are very involved, right? Uh, and they suffer too, uh, because you know men who take a lot of time taking care of their kids are often penalized. Uh, so that's also something we need to be quite careful about. Uh, but you know, there's, so there's essentially there's different scales, right? There's stuff that you really push for institutional change, but there's also small things that you can act, you can do quickly that have also an impact. And I think, I think in addition to that, if, if one is in a position where there's so many little things and that's not so little a thing, but one example what, that I can tell you when I was head of a society, um, a woman asked me, well, could she combine pay, me paying for not her to come to give a talk, but like her mother to come because she could fund herself from another means and being like little things like that that you have some influence over and you can just say yes you know it's like th there are so many little things like that uh, you can get in a different discussion about you know who actually would ask knows to ask for things like that but you when you have a position where you've got a bit of influence then you can try and use it individually yeah i think it's Exactly, all these small or not so small um, incremental changes or uh, helps. Yeah, I think that's very important. I'm, I'm very happy to hear that, that you are very involved in this kind of things. It's, I think it's very important. And you were talking about well, maternity and paternity leave. Uh, at least in the UK, paternity leave is ridiculously short. I think it's like two weeks, isn't it? Yeah. At least the, the, the minimum you, you get. As someone who's coming from zero maternity leave in the US, it seems like quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, well, but I think it's still ridicul ridiculously short. So in France, they changed it, I think, last week or so. So now it's going to be four weeks. What can you do in, like, in two weeks or four weeks? Yeah, then, then there well, is it's better than nothing, though. It is better than nothing, but yeah, that doesn't mean it's good. But, but so in the UK, you have shared parental leave. So you can share parental leave for a much longer time with your partner, right? Yeah. Okay. That's not paternity leave per se. That's this mm -hmm. share thing, which is, you know, it's this, the scheme is not perfect, but it's, it's in the right direction. Mm -hmm. So on this same topic, I was talking to a friend of mine who she's had her second baby recently. And she, she mentioned the, the impact of maternity or paternity leave that it has on a researcher's career. So she, she made me realize that the, the actual impact of going on, on this kind of leave is, is actually bigger than, than the leave itself. That would be the time that you're not at work or, or in your lab. What do you think about that? Do you think the, the impact is much bigger than the leave itself on, on someone's career? Maybe Link could start first. I think it is. So 
if you are a researcher, you've got your lab and your research that doesn't stop if just because you have a baby or take maternity leave. Things that could stop, which would be helpful, are teaching administrative responsibilities. Mariam, do you want to say something else? Yeah, so, so I've had four maternity leave. <laughs> um, and indeed, you can't completely stop because you still need to supervise your people, right? So teaching and admin stops. And now also uh, quite a few universities recognize that when you come back, teaching and admin should not restart immediately because when you come back, you also need to you know, spend more time on your research and all of this. Mm -hmm. So that's something that the School of Biology in Edinburgh is doing now. Uh, but it's not, it's not yet actually common in all the departments. Uh, and that's important. Uh, however, the research doesn't stop and, you know, the people in your group still need supervision. So balancing that is not that easy. And also, you know, you, you submit a paper, it comes back and you have three weeks mm -hmm. to send the, the revision, right? And it's still not common that people will be comfortable enough to say, well, I'm on maternity leave. Mm -hmm. Can we please move the deadline? And I'm not sure all, all journals will actually do it. I've heard of cases where actually the editor would not do it. But I also heard of cases where the editor did it because once I ask, I ask for one month, more one more month, and I was given the one more month. So you know, it, it's not like common. It's not like a rule. It's not like something that you would do by default. Now, however, the question is: if you have your babies doing your PhD and your postdoc, then really your research stops whilst you're away, right? And in some cases, it can be really tough because there's you know sometimes quite harsh competition or as I just mentioned, a paper that was submitted and, you know, we need to do the crucial experiments and, and stuff like that. Uh, that is not an easy thing to, to manage. And, you know, in some very rich institutions, uh, people who go on maternity leave will be given some help, like a technician might be hired. Uh, and that can be even if the PI is going on maternity leave or also some of the postdocs or PhD students. Mm -hmm. This is only happening in very rich institutions. Uh, that would, that I think would be extremely helpful. You know, it's, it's really not common, which, you know, can be quite interesting because if you're in a company, you go on maternity leave, somebody actually replaces you, right? Like the company pays for somebody to replace you, but not in research. Mm -hmm. And, you know, granted, maybe they, you know, they can't write the PhD thesis, so you shouldn't get somebody to really replace you. But, you know, technical help for a few months to run some experiments would yeah. be really useful. Or maybe technical help when you come back so that you can sort of move, you know, faster. And I can tell you, so my last baby I had uh, in Boston and then I moved to Edinburgh and there were a couple of crucial experiments that essentially were not done because of the timing of when I came back from maternity leave in Edinburgh. And then those experiments were delayed by more than a year because then I came back to Edinburgh, I had to start my lab, buy equipment, microscope was not running, all of this. Right? If I had had like two or three months of technical help, I think one paper would have been published maybe two years earlier. Right? And, and so, but you know, this is it's not part of the culture and I don't really understand why it's not part of the culture because in many other companies, if you're away, somebody comes to do your job, right? In one of your later questions, you ask what the government or the research institutes could do. I think that providing some, and you could decide like six months of technical help and you can decide how you use it and when you use it would be incredibly useful. Yeah, that would be very, very helpful. And also, if there is no one there, um, that puts even more pressure on, on the scientists. 
Um, what, what happens in terms of uh, grant applications or things like this? Can you apply for things while you are on, on maternity leave? Or does that, because usually you apply far in advance, right? So you might miss some rounds. So you can apply if you're on maternity leave. The main issue is for uh, funding agencies that have only a one yearly call. So if, if there's three calls a year, essentially you will manage, right? You, you might miss, you know, if your baby's born just when you should be applying, well, then you'll go to the next one, but you lose only three, four months, right? Uh, but quite a few funding agencies have only a yearly call. And, you know, you might not be in a state when your baby is one month old to, to finalize the application. And then you lose a year, right? So I'm thinking, for example, about the ERC. Now, the ERC has some rules that at least it extends the timing uh, from which you're allowed to apply when you have kids, right? So it gives you each time you have kids, it extends the, the, the... There's a deadline. I mean, there's a certain time after your PhD that you can... You are allowed to apply for starting grants, for example. But it takes into account the fact that you have kids. Uh, so that's, you know, that's very good. But still, having only a one yearly call uh, adds a lot of pressure. Sure. So in the UK, we're quite lucky because UKRI and also the Wellcome Trust, so the major funding agencies have only th they have three calls a, a, a year, which makes it much more manageable, right? Because uh, also, you know, you might have a really good plan and then, you know, the doctor says you need to stay in bed and not move at all because there's an issue with the pregnancy, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, having that flexibility makes a huge difference. But you can, so absolutely on what Miriam said on the yearly ones, you can su submit them, right, that you're not, you're not, if you're on maternity leave, you're not prevented from submitting anything. And you might have to, so, so you don't get an extension on any funding you currently have, right? So ideally, like what we were saying about having a technician, what would really be awesome is if you got not what they call a no-cost extension, which means you get the same amount of money but for six months longer, but you actually got an extra six months funding that you could then spend on a technician or whatever you want, that would be really actually helpful, I think. Yeah, I agree with you. And um, now that you've mentioned the UKRI, so here in the UK, the, the national funding agency that invests in science and research is, is the UKRI. And they sponsor projects across seven research councils of different disciplines like physics, humanities, engineering, natural sciences, etc. So the Research Council for Biotechnology and Biological Sciences, just the, the field that concerns us, is the BBSRC. So uh, the BBSRC has put the focus on, on equality and diversity. I, I don't know if stronger than other councils, but certainly at least in, in, in the last few years. And this is this is partially reflected on the recently published UKRI data from these last five academic years. So from 2014-15 to the year 2018-19. So this data shows that uh, during this time, which it's maybe representative, but it's only five years, female PIs and female fellows applied for and were awarded the same amount uh, of money than the men. So yeah, they, they apply for similar grants in terms of money and they were awarded similar amounts of money. However, this data also shows a clear underrepresentation of women in the positions of PI and co-investigators, roughly like one female to three males. I wanted to ask you how, how well do you think this data reflects reality? Maybe I'll ask first Miriam. 
so so I looked at the data uh, because I was surprised. Uh, and if you look at the data for BBSRC, what you see is that actually the proportion of women who are successful is lower than the proportion of men who are successful. Right. So the success rate is actually lower for men for women than it is for men. So they apply for the same amount of money, but they actually are less successful than men, which I think the BBSRC is not really commenting on too much. Okay. It's not a small, it's, it's actually a relatively small difference. It's a few percentages, right? Uh, but something that you have to bear in mind is actually small differences have a strong impact. And uh, this is actually very well documented. Uh, it's been documented to the 40s by somebody whose name is now escaping me, but he actually got the Nobel Prize in economics about that. So really small differences in a system that is uh, like a pyramid where you, you know, either you get it and you get, you go to the next level or you don't, right? So it's, it's completely nonlinear. Like it's not like, uh, I get, I'm getting 60% of the amount of money that I accepted, right? Is, that I requested is I'm getting zero or I'm getting the full amount. Okay. Actually, the small proportion, they have a really big, uh, a really big effect because they get, you know, compounded every time, right? So you don't get that grant and then you don't get that one and then you don't get that one, right? And then, so at the, diff at the end, actually men tend to really have more grant money than women. And also, I, you know, this is true for BBSRC. I haven't seen the data for Wellcome Trust. They published general data showing that uh, uh, success rate for men and women were the same at Wellcome Trust. But actually, this is general data when they mix social science and uh, STEM. And if you look at UKRI, indeed in social science, the, the success rate is the men, is the same, but not in BBSRC and not in EPSRC. So not in physics, astronomy, engineering, math, and biology. That said, also women tend to apply less than men. Okay, so they're applying for the same amount of money, but the proportion of women who are applying out of the pool is a bit low. So it's, it's 20% approximately, 25, I think. And we know that in the UK, if you look at average proportion of women who are PI, it's 30%, right? So it looks like also women are not all applying at the same rate than men. Uh, I am not sure exactly why. Uh, we looked at that quite carefully in biological sciences. It's not the case in biological sciences. Actually, in biological sciences, women tend to apply, I mean, when, I mean in Edinburgh, women tend to apply more than men in our department. And they're as successful as men. I don't, so I don't know why nationally there is a difference and not in our department. It's also to take with a grain of caution because this becomes, at least when we analyze at department level, relatively small numbers. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, from one year to the other, you will see fluctuations, right? Because we, we are very research intensive uh, department. There's a lot of applications, but still it's not like a huge and huge amount of numbers. So there can be quite a bit of fluctuation from one year to the other. But generally speaking, uh, women in our department are playing exactly as men and they're essentially as successful. But this is not the exact trend nationally. And in, in the UK, are these applications anonymous? No, okay. they're, not, they're not anonymous. Do you think it could be possible to make them anonymous? Well, I think it, I've seen th things where people try to make things anonymous, but it's really hard because you're trying to be judged on your track record, which then, you may, well, not trying to be, but you are judged on your track record. And so doing that anonymously is virtually impossible. It's yeah. very hard. Uh, I know that EMBO uh, tried to anonymize the applications to 
long-term fellowships. So it's a two-stage process, right? Uh, first, uh, they look at the CVs and then they do interviews. Uh, and they said that in their experience, it didn't actually changes, change the outcome. I'm not so sure because the outcome comes after an interview. You can't anonymize an interview. Yeah. And we know, like, you know, you know that for orchestras, you know, if you do blinded inter yeah. blinded interviews for music, for orchestras, you actually change the outcome. So yeah. I think it's much more that it's very hard to do. I was going to give the same example as Miriam, that when I think it was violinists or were assessed for orchestras behind the screen versus seeing them, the numbers became much more 50-50 than they ever used to be, which is more like 10 to 90. But you can't really do that you know, in the way that we're assessed in grants. And so that comes into the unconscious, because I'm sure the people who are reviewing the orchestra um, violinists didn't think that they were biased, but putting the screening kind of showed them that really at some level unconsciously they must have been. Yeah, it's, it's obviously a difficult thing to implement if, if it's not been implemented yet. Um, so because of your international experience, I, I wanted to ask you how this situation of like senior positions being well far underrepresented by, by, by women, do you have the same situation in France or in the USA? And, and if you do, well, if you don't basically, are, are they doing something better or worse? Maybe Lynn, about think, the US. I think, I mean, at my experience in the US, you do. And I think a lot of this data that Mariam also referred to about the, the percentage starting off high and then dropping off, a lot of that, those studies were done in the US. And I think it's the same. And then what you might really be thinking of, well, how do you change that? And so I think you would have to have consequences for not having, say, gender equality in the number of people you had at, say, the professor level in a department. So, for example, if a department was 90% male professors, 10% female, you could say, you can't do another hire unless you address that imbalance. Because actually this had been discussed in the US and then there are rules that say, well, you can't specify the next hire has to be a woman and that has got all sorts of complications associated with it anyway. But you could, but they don't say you have to have a, a, a balance that represents whatever community you want it to represent and that you can't get any more positions unless you're working towards that. But I think from my experience, the, it's the same in the US. It's not any better. Okay, maybe, so, maybe in France it's different. Yeah, so I think in France it's better. Uh, and the main reason, I think there's two reasons. So first, there is a general consensus in the society that um, women should be able to work. And France is a very natalist country. Uh, so it supports family, which means, which is what I was saying before, that childcare is somewhat subsidized, not entirely, but it is especially if you're not earning, earning a lot of money. Um, and also you pay less taxes if you have kids, right? Um, and the second thing is, France, as I said, uh, has these national institutes where you get a permanent position quite early in your career. Right? 
what it means is that women my generation, or actually I probably was one of the really late generations, so, but before me, you would get position quite early in your career. And as I said, you know, it has a really strong impact on how you balance work and your family. Unfortunately, this has now dried off. So mm. those institutes are hardly recruiting anymore. And the government is now imp uh, implementing tenure track system. Mm. And so I am quite certain that it's going to go in the wrong direction. And not only I'm quite, not, you know, it's not only a hypothesis. So at the Pasteur Institute, they uh, used to recruit people on permanent position. And then I think 10 years ago, they put up a tenure track system. And they saw the percentage of women whom they recruited go down. Like that. Okay. Uh, they now have managed, I think, to improve. It used to be, the Pasteur Institute used to be, it's a very pre prestigious institute in France, it used to be actually very well female balanced. Uh, and it's gone down really badly. They, they're now making a lot of effort to sort of compensate, so I think it's getting better. But, you know, that was quite impressive. So uh, I think in France it's going to get worse. Are they not planning to revert those changes? Or? Uh, so in, in France there's currently being discussed a big law on how they are going to organize research in the next few years and one of the main thing is to introduce tenure track things. <laughs> and you know this was discussed and people raised the issues of gender. Actually in that law it's really quite telling. There's very very little that is uh, discussed about gender balance. Essentially nothing. Completely overlooked. Mm -hmm. That's it's quite interesting, right? So we'll see, but I think the situation is going to get worse. So I was going to ask you if you anticipated a, a fair gender balance in, in the near future. You've, you've just answered that for France. I don't know about the UK. and In the UK, certainly, you know, here in Edinburgh, we, we really, you know, things have changed quite a bit in like the last five, ten years. And I think there's a general really recognition among the research co community in the UK that this is a problem that we need to tackle, which actually is not really the case in France. It's much less spoken about in France, possibly because for a long time people thought that in France there wasn't so much of a problem, right? uh, because of what I said before, people getting permanent position earlier and all of this. Um, so I think in the UK there's really a strong will in, in terms of trying to improve things. I don't think the improvements are going to be really fast because it's just hard to make changes. Uh, and the other thing is I'm quite worried about the implications of the pandemic because we know that the pandemic is, is actually having a much stronger effect on women than it has on men. And uh, I'm talking about female in science uh, and I'm worried about that. I'm worried that we're going to go backward. It is really well known that actually, you know, the progress towards gender equality or more general, uh, more generally equality actually can sometimes go, go back. You sometimes go backward. It's not like, you know, we're really going on the, on the path and it's slow and we're going in the same direction. Mm -hmm. Anytime there is a crisis, this was said by Simone de Beauvoir in the 60s in France, mm -hmm. anytime there is a crisis, the first people to pay are women, I would say actually probably minorities. Like in the 60s, she was really very much involved in the women, but, uh, you know, I think it's more generally minorities. So the good thing is the research community in the UK is really tuned to that. At the moment, and there is, a, I think, there really is a strong will to try and improve things. Uh, the bad thing is we're in the middle of a really big crisis, and you know this will have some impact. Um, so I, I, I can't make prediction. I don't have a, you know, I can't make predictions. But yeah. Do, do you know why um, COVID, while well, the pandemic, is having a bigger impact on female scientists? I mean, have you looked at the the experts that were interviewed? Right, they were ninety percent male. 
Okay. Uh, we see, we know that submission from women have decreased during the lockdown. Women have taken care of many much more of the kids. I mean, all of this. Right. It's it's you know, unconscious bias. We're looking for an expert. It has to be a white male, mm -hmm. right? Childcare. All of this, I mean, this is exactly what we've said already, but it's just that because it's in crisis mode, it's kind of stronger. Right? So, nothing new, I think. Do you want to say something, Lynn? I don't really want to say too much. I would just say one thing, kind of um, follow up on what you said for Simone de Beauvoir's quote, but also if you think about other things like, you know, sustainability and everything that we were caring about that when like the crisis hits we suddenly oh give me plastic give me plastic you know so it and then i think like marion said that the gender equality and the racial equality kind of comes in oh we have to cope with this crisis let's forget about that for the moment right because we've got something much more important to worry about and all those things that we were beginning to think were important and mm. becomes less so beyond that i don't really have anything to add that's no, that's that's very true. Um, sadly, uh, finally, and that's more of a personal kind of question. It is a it is a known fact that academia can be can be both challenging and, and rewarding. But I would like to ask you, uh, maybe Lynn first this time, mm -hmm. if you recommend pursuing a, a career in academia. So n not just to to women, but both women and men. Mm -hmm. I would say I, I do. I mean, I, 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 pers I love doing research. I love the independence that an academic position gives you. I love interacting with people in lab and figuring out problems. So, yeah, it's great. You can you have quite a lot of flexibility. You can, you know, I, I was writing myself some notes here. You can work any 12 hours in the day <laughs> that you like. So, you know, you can work in the, I mean, it is long times, but yeah, there's all those positive things about it. So, yeah, I can't, I had trouble imagining doing anything else because of all those things like that I think are great about leading a research group and all aspects of it is very exciting. So in spite of what we've been talking about, I still think that's, you know, a huge positive. Do you share the same views, uh, Miriam? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's a fantastic career. It's been, I really, I mean, I love doing science. And I, I as Lynn said, I, I love sharing it. Uh, I also, you know, I like to interact with students. Uh, we sometimes complain about, you know, teaching and teaching too much and all of this, but it's also really nice, right, to sort of transmit what you know and and, and get people enthusiastic, at least some people enthusiastic yeah. about what we do. Uh, and I love the interactions with people in my lab. You know, one of the privileges of science is you meet such a diverse crowd of people and they're highly motivated, they're super bright, they come up, they're super creative and all of this, right? So it's really a privilege to work with, mm -hmm. uh, you know, such a diverse crowd and also people who are so, you know, enthusiastic. Uh, it, I think it's, it, you know, as I, probably any career, um, it, it is demanding and it's important to uh, know that and acknowledge it and try and, and improve it, right? Uh, but that doesn't mean people should not choose this career. It's just, I think it's better to know a little bit at the beginning, you know, what you're up to. <laughs> uh, and there are problems, but there's problems in many different careers, right? So I certainly would not choose any other path. 
Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I know we've talked about all this kind of negative stuff, but I wouldn't say that's the the take home message. Because if you think about other situations like doing research in um, or working, I don't know how much real working in industry, much more strict about. I, I did a postdoc at du, a research institute in Dupont, and they were very like strict hours, like people. So there were traffic jams coming into work because everybody had to be there by eight thirty. And so all those things that you don't have in academia are a huge benefit. And like, I, I, yeah, this idea of interacting with people and working and thinking about what's, you're just thinking about what experiment do I want to do next? How can we do it best? That intellectual challenge and talking to people in your lab about that. That's just great. Well, as, as, a, as a PhD student, I'm, I'm glad you're, you're both. <laughs> Um, encouraging people to follow this track um, and with this thank you so so much to both of you Lynn and Miriam uh, for sharing with us and with all our listeners your, your views and experiences about this very important topic about your international experience and I hope we've motivated some younger students to to gain some international experience and to to follow their their academic dreams and uh, we hope we see uh, a fair gender balance sooner rather than later in in, in the future and and it's, it's great that people like you are working for for this changes to to happen and, and and to happen like as i said as soon as possible thank you very much for joining us today you're um, welcome <laughs> thank you thank you very much it was a pleasure bye bye That ends this episode. I hope you found it as insightful and inspiring as we did. Thanks to our guests, Professor Miriam al and Professor Lynn Regan, Joanne, our interviewer, and the whole Biopod team for their work behind the scenes. Finally, if you are looking for more fantastic science news, remember to follow us on Twitter at Biopod Edinburgh. See you next month.